Hello good, hello, good morning. My name is Kay, and I'm reading the Old Testament found in Psalms 131 through 8. A pilgrimage song. I cry out from the depths, Lord. My Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears pay close attention to my request for mercy. If you keep track of sins, Lord, my Lord, who would stand a chance? But forgiveness is with you. That's why you are honored, I hope, Lord. My whole being hopes, and I wait for God's promise. My whole being waits for my Lord more than the night watch waits for morning. Yes, more than the night watch waits for morning. Israel, wait for the Lord. Because faithful love is the Lord, because great redemption is with God. He is the one who will redeem Israel from all its sin. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Sharina. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 38 through 39. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Ruth. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. The gospel reading today can be found in Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals hanging next to Jesus insulted him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Responding, the other criminal spoke harshly to him. Don't you fear God, seeing that you've also been sentenced to die? We are rightly condemned, for we are receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you that today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord. Will you remain standing while we pray? Lord, your word this morning is a treasure. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. So, Lord, may your word come and dwell among us richly this morning by the resurrecting power and personal presence of the Holy Spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight in this room, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Hear our prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. 
My name is Pete Sanchez, and I'd like to welcome you here and greet those watching online. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. We're in a sermon series, as you know, on the Psalms of Ascent, or the Psalms of Going Up. They're also called the Psalms of Pilgrimage. And there are 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134. And this morning, my focus is going to be Psalm 130. It's the 11th of the 15th. Now, Psalm 130 is traditionally called a lament psalm because it starts with the words, out of the depths. Or it's called a penitential psalm because he cries out for mercy. But it's also a psalm of hope. And though this prototypical psalm is called a lament psalm, I'm going to approach it from a totally non-traditional direction. So let me begin with a question this morning. Have you ever watched a movie that begins with a scene somewhere in the middle or towards the end of the movie? And intuitively, as you're watching that scene, you're asking, what's happening? Where are we and who are these people? Obviously, the scene needs some unpacking. Now, of course, the writers who write these movies know that because they've set the stage for you. They know that your internal questions will create interest in the plot line of the movie. And then always at a predetermined spot, the scene will change, and this line will appear against a backdrop. It says like this, five years earlier. So now you get it. You're on rewind. You're taken back to an earlier time in the story where you're introduced to people and places, good times and tense times, but they're all essential to the story you've just watched. But all such movies are designed to invite us into the story, hoping we'll connect with the characters, love the soundtrack, boo the bad guys, and, uh, and you know, cheer for the, you know, the, the good ones, and then leave the movie breathing a little bit easier when we experience an ending with the creative resolution of some kind. One to which we'll walk out saying, boy, that was a great movie, or that movie really made me think, or I need time to process what I just saw. Every good filmmaker wants you to walk out thinking and talking about what you just experienced. Now, I'm going to try to do something similar with Psalm 130. I'm going to start with the last two verses of the psalm and then work us backwards. So let's fast forward to the final two verses of Psalm 130 that we just read. In those two verses, we meet a confident, hope-filled, even passionate singer-poet praying, declaring, and singing hope over his community. So let's listen to the rousing chorus of his song in Psalm 130. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will, future tense, redeem Israel from all their sins. That's the NIV. And then another translation says it this way. Wait for the Lord, exclamation point. Why? Because faithful love is with the Lord. Because great redemption is with our God. He is the one who will, future tense, redeem Israel from all its sin. Our psalmist here as he sings and writes is obviously 
in a high personal space, a hope-filled place. And from that height, he sings of a God who is himself personally committed to resolving and healing Israel's historic waywardness, just as he had promised to earlier generations. Now, it's true that when Israel returned from Babylonian exile in 538 B.C., Jerusalem, the city, was in a rubble. Much work laid before the 50,000 or so Jews who chose to return from exile. And some of them who were old enough to remember how it used to be, how the city and temple used to be before the Babylonians burned them to the ground, they would have come back naturally disappointed and a bit disillusioned by what they saw and the work that lay before them. But nonetheless, our psalmist is singing confidently of a future hope in a God of faithful love and abundant, inexhaustible redemption. So the poet points the way forward for the nation with two words, which in reality are synonyms. Wait for the Lord, hope in the Lord. Say that with me. Wait for the Lord, hope in the Lord. Now, after having enjoyed the psalmist's optimism in those last two verses, work with me now. Our screen now fades to black, and a line appears which reads, Some years earlier. When we go back, we meet the same psalmist writing of and from a very, very different place, a low place, a dark personal abyss, a depth of distress in which he feels he's drowning. He's weighed down by the mess he's made or the mess he finds himself in. Now, we're not told in the scriptures exactly what his situation is. But whatever it is, and however long he's been there, he's unable to get himself out of trouble. So his opening lyrics here, unlike what we just read, are much darker, much more personal, and brutally honest. So he starts out with this phrase, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. This is the line he chooses to capture his call for help. In effect, his words here or a 9-11 call. I'm wondering if you've ever been in a place like him or similar to his. Have you ever been drowning in or exhausted by a seemingly irresolvable circumstance or situation? I have, and I know from experience, from long experience, that some in here can sympathize with our psalmist. Or at a minimum, some of you know someone who are living in a whirlpool of chaos. The psalmist here spares us the gory details of his depths, but this line has provided prayer language for generations of men and women in really tough times like it does for us this morning. And we know from his word choice that he's in over his head. Our psalmist is out of answers <laughs> and advisors, or as Eugene Peterson writes, there's no one around with glib, smart answers, graduate lectures on suffering, band-aid treatments, quick cures, or anyone telling our psalmist to take a vacation, use this drug, or get a hobby. There are no cover-ups or fake smiles or positive thinking. None of that. This suffering, whatever the cause, is held up and proclaimed and prayed. And here's his prayer. Lord, 
My Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears pay close attention to my request for mercy. So in the depths, he cries out to God for help, for mercy. It's, it's curious to me that he doesn't cry out for vengeance or retribution. He doesn't cry out for justice or self-justification. He cries out for God's mercy. It's, yeah, it's self-yielding, a giving up of all previous attempts to save himself. For him, if light is now to come into his darkness, if any rescue is possible in the depths in which he finds himself, God himself will have to provide it. Perhaps our psalmist recalls Jonah's cry from, for help from the depths of the sea in the belly of a great fish. God heard and delivered Jonah. Perhaps he would do the same for our psalmist. But I can't help but remember the thief on the cross beside Jesus, who in a merciless, unforgiving atmosphere, in a personal depth unimaginable to me, he cries out to Jesus for mercy with these words, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he receives a today mercy. Today you will be with me in paradise. So what's the takeaway? What's the good news from verses 1 and 2? Here's what I want to offer you. That in the depths, in the dark places, God is never distant and he's never deaf to our cries for help. Never, never. Now, I've been in the depths with my family of origin as we tried to survive the ravages of alcohol on my father and the abuses of his own father on him as a boy and then his abuse on my mother. I remember many nights that were long and dark and their fights were constant and sometimes physical. I've been in the depths myself with petty mal epilepsy attacking me most often while I was singing or leading worship. My wife Karen was there. She remembers how my left hand would draw up and my left side of my face would draw up and my mouth would draw up and my speech would begin to be slurred. There I was in its grip in the depths of a moment from which I could not extricate myself. Karen and I have walked through dark places in ministry and in family life. And the only cry we had in those deep, painful places was, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. So I understand what the psalmist is crying out for here. So now we come to verse 3 of his song, what I call the big if. If you, God, kept track of our sins, our wrongdoings, my Lord, who would ever stand a chance? To the psalmist and to us all, the answer is intended to be obvious. It's not a trick question. It's a statement of reality. It's him taking ownership, personal responsibility, that yet though God knows well our wrongdoings, <laughs> and if he chose to, could list them all in living color for us all, he chooses to forgive rather than hold any or all of them against us. Why? That's my question. But the psalmist gives us a very dramatic answer in verse 4. But as it turns out, the psalmist writes, forgiveness is your habit. And that's why you're worshipped. You know why we gather here on Sunday morning? We've been forgiven. We've been given much. We don't gather just to go to another meeting. It's because he's forgiven us. 
He's made us new. And that's what the psalmist has discovered. So why does God not keep a record of our sin or use what he knows against us? Because God's nature, God's nature is to forgive, to be faithful to his covenant, even when you and I are incapable of, or unwilling to be faithful. His redeeming mercy is a rich, inexhaustible love that at its heart always, always desires to redeem. It's like the psalm says in Psalm 117, the shortest psalm among the psalms. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Worship him, all you peoples, because God's faithful love toward us is strong. The Lord's faithfulness lasts forever. Praise the Lord. So what's the takeaway this morning from the, what's the good news from verses three and four? Here it is. Broken and wayward lives are never, never outside the forgiveness of God. The psalmist here writes that God's forgiveness is the reason God is worshiped. God is honored and God is revered. So forgiveness then is the substance of worship. But how could it be otherwise? This line is for me the hook in the psalmist's song. This is the fulcrum upon which everything else rests. Wouldn't we naturally be grateful to be rescued out of our depths? Wouldn't we naturally be thankful that God chooses forgiveness over judgment? Isn't gratitude always at the heart of worship? That's what Micah reminded us of last week. So we would naturally sing out, I was lost, now I'm found. I was drowning, now I've been rescued. I was caught in a riptide, and I was thrown a lifeline. I was buried in anger, betrayal, grief, depression, church hurt, divorce, broken relationships, financial downturn, infidelity, pornography, drug abuse, the loss of a spouse or a child, or a devastating medical report. And the Lord, in the midst of that depth, heard my cry for help and rescued me. Listen, for those of us, for those of us who have known those depths, lived those depths, and have traveled through mercy and forgiveness to hope, worship is our best way of demonstrating gratitude. There's a movie that I love called The Mission. You may have seen it. It's an older movie, but it's a true story set in 1750. It's a movie in which Robert De Niro plays a mercenary and a slave trader. He hunts native Indians for profit. He's known and he's feared. But in a duel over a woman, he kills his younger brother, which drives him to solitude and the desire to die. A Jesuit priest, played by Jeremy Irons, offers him a way out of his depths through a penance that will involve his gathering up every vestige of his former life, placing them in a net, and carrying them up a treacherous mountain to the top of the very waterfalls where he once hunted the Indians, who, by the way, still live there. Accompanied but unassisted by the Jesuit priest, his climb is dangerous, slippery, and weighed down by what he pulls behind him. He slips and falls several times, beginning again and again. Finally, they reach the top of the waterfalls, 
The Indians greet the priests with joy, but then they see the slave trader by whose hand many among them had been enslaved or even shot. We see an Indian grabs a knife. He runs towards Robert De Niro, the character he plays. He grabs his beard, lifts up his head as though to slit his throat. Then in a surprise move, that Indian cuts away the rope to the net containing every vestige of his former life he had dragged up the mountain and then pushed it over the edge into the waters below. The relief is obvious. Then De Niro, realizing what had just happened, begins to sob uncontrollably in response to the forgiveness he had just been granted. He knew he deserved death, but he received life. Forgiveness changed him. And might I add, this is the forgiveness the psalmist knows. This is the forgiveness the psalmist is talking about. And this is the forgiveness that I know. I deserved one thing and received another. Hallelujah. Let's move on to verses 5 and 6. The scripture says, I hope, Lord, my whole being hopes, and I wait for God's promise. My whole being waits for my Lord more than the night watch waits for the morning. Yes, more than the night watch waits for the morning. From the depths, the psalmist cried out for mercy. He marveled at the forgiveness of God, and he gave witness to why God is worthy of worship. He's captured now by this God. So in these verses, he continues his climb, his ascent from despair to hope, to waiting and welcoming the full realization of God's promise. Everything in him is now poised like watchmen who stand at watch because of the dangers which lie in the darkness. While the city sleeps, watchmen stand guard. They must be alert, vigilant, awake, armed, and ready. So must he. They endure fatigue, boredom, and cold. So will he. But they wait with confidence, knowing that the night will not, cannot last. The dawn will come. The sun will rise. And the light of day, the light of day will chase away every shadow and every darkness. So like them, the psalmist waits, hopes, and leans into the faithful love of God. This God of mercy, this God of forgiveness, this God who is worthy of our worship. He waits patient, patiently for assurance from this God. He knows that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. So he is not a passive waiting waiter, but he's a patient waiter. His waiting is an active and pulsating with life expectation. It's a living hope. It's a rescued hope. And while his heart waits, looks off into the distance, waiting for this assurance, I'm thinking that perhaps familiar words from other songwriters, other singer-poets may fuel his hope. The scriptures say he has turned our mourning into dancing. You have removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Or perhaps he remembers that his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. And though weeping may endure for a night, joy, <laughs> joy, rejoicing comes in the morning. 
Or maybe he remembers the scriptures that says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. Now, we might offer him a few lyrics from a modern worship song that he might want to sing to himself that has these words. So take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. And hold on to your hope as your triumph unfolds. He's never failing. He's never failing. So what's the takeaway from verses 6 and 7? Here it is. Expectant hope always draws its life from the promises of God. Consider Jesus on the cross. He was in the deepest of depths, yet he prays, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Betrayed, imprisoned, beaten, scourged, mocked, rejected by those he came to save, sentenced to death, crucified, and then buried in a borrowed tomb. And then came the darkness of Friday night and the silence of Saturday, during which many wrestled, believe me, with shattered hopes, personal anguish, and literal fear for their lives. Indeed, heaven seemed to hold its breath as creation held the body of Jesus. But consider Jesus' final words on the cross as the depths, fueled by demonic darkness, focused in and closed in around him. He said, into your faithful hands, I commend my spirit. So as Jesus' eyes close and announce the conclusion to his earthly life, I hear echoes of our psalm, Psalm 130. My life's on the line before God, my Lord. I, I wait for God's promise. My whole being waits. I watch in hope for my Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Yes, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. And then Sunday morning came, and everything changed. He set captives free. He still sets captives free. Hallelujah. Now, let me just say, the Sunday morning came for my dad when he gave his life to Christ in a meeting which I, in, in which I led worship. Sunday morning came for him. He didn't stay the same. Sunday morning came for me when God silently and without fanfare healed me from the epilepsy that had bound me. That Sunday morning changed the future for Karen and me. It still does. Hear me, it still does. For those who wait expectantly on the Lord and refuse to give up their hope in Him. If we stopped here in verses 5 and 6, and hadn't been introduced to the earlier arousing chorus of his song in, his, in the final two verses, we would read the text and be left wondering what happened to our friend, the psalmist. We would leave him waiting, expecting the darkness to bow to the dawning of God's brilliant, forgiving presence in due time. But as we move from the depths to the heights, where we first met our singer-poet, to my mind, a time gap seems to present itself. It's what I call a beautiful silence between verses 6 and 7. The text, <laughs> the text is wonderfully silent here. 
but I believe there just might be a breath, a grand pause, a pregnant moment between verses 6 and 7. If you go to your Bible, there's nothing there. But for me, it's as if something is happening off stage, away from our sight. I sense a stirring, an awakening, a happening. There's movement of some kind, or to use a different visual image. As our psalmist, hope comes to full bloom. It says, though in this beautifully silent moment, he is being cradled in the faithfulness of God and lifted gently and deliberately towards the light of the water surface, his former weight of sin is removed, cut away, and falls back into the depths below him. He feels the lift of God's forgiveness. His face and his faith together break the surface of the water. And suddenly he's out of the depths and he's lifted up into the full light of day. His lungs fill with fresh breath as his long and anticipated rescue becomes his new reality and his cause for instant elation and celebration. Yes, this is what we call worship, being lifted up and out of and into the heights of God's presence. I like to imagine that in such an intermission between verses, he might sing something similar to the chorus and bridge of a song I've come to love. It's a song of hope. It's called Cherry Blossoms. The writer's chorus says this, In winter, I believe you. In springtime, I see you. It's so good to be with you. My hope has come. Lord, you make all things new. Your love is my breakthrough. Now I sing hallelujah. My hope has come. And I love his bridge. It says this. Now I'm not going to give in to this mortal frustration. And I'm not going to give death any standing ovation. I will lift my soul, God, with no hesitation. Because between you and me, there is no separation. On our side of the resurrection... On our side of the resurrection, we know that God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ when we were dead as a result of those things we did wrong. But he did this because of the great love he has for us. And on this side of Easter, we know that God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And we know on this side of Easter, that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Let me tell you, your redemption, my redemption, was a big part of the joy that he witnessed in that moment. I'd like to invite the worship team and the communion team to make their way to the platform. In winter, I believe you. In springtime, I see you. It's so good to be with you. My hope has come. And so now we are back to where we first began, to the psalmist's exuberant final words, to the pinnacle, the height of his song of hope. And as we listen again, we realize that his song, his final prayer has become the soundtrack to the story we've been watching. But it's our story too. When the credits roll, the only name that appears 
is triune. Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. It's as, it's as if our psalmist spoken, sung, prayed hope is a prophetic glance into a future in which he sees a future beauty of which he must sing and to which he calls Israel, his readers, and us. We have the advantage today of experiencing the highest revelation and realization of the ancient singer's hope, a full, inexhaustible, superabundant redemption in Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah. So let me conclude with these words. New Life Downtown, whatever depth you find yourself in or might soon find yourself in, let me invite you to make this psalmist song your own and to put your hope in the Lord. Mercy, forgiveness, presence, hope, and unfailing love are with Him. Abundant, inexhaustible help and redemption are with Him. So in closing, let me revisit the three takeaways from today's psalm. New Life Downtown, in your depths, remember that God is never distant or deaf to your cries for help. Can you say amen to that? He's not deaf. He's not distant. A song from another psalmist that we sang earlier today, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But another line in that song says, it says this, His oath, His covenant, His blood supports me in the overwhelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All to the ground is sinking sand. Our second takeaway, New Life Downtown, in your depths, remember that no broken life or wayward story is outside the forgiveness of God. Jesus himself invites us to his table where we'll always find the forgiveness the cutting away of freedom from the weight that burdens us and a way out of whatever depths we find ourselves in. So cry out to him and remember as a thief on the cross dared to believe, he is rich, rich, so rich in mercy. And finally, in your depths, New Life Downtown, remember that expectant hope always draws its life from the promises of a faithful God. And as the table of the Lord reminds us today and always that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So can I say to you this morning, take courage. Take courage, my friends. He's in your waiting. Cry out to him. Remember who he is. He is forgiveness. And wait with expectant hope for his presence to dawn in your circumstances. Look intently for God's new mercies to come to you. And then when, when His light breaks over your life and you experience His powerful and gentle hand lifting you out of your depths and you fill your lungs with the fresh air of freedom, let me encourage you to worship and begin to dance to a music only a person 
and community rescued from the depths can ever sing or ever hear. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've not left us without hope. Our hope is in you, Lord. So we stand today, we're here today, looking into your word and letting your word look into us for the glory of your name, for the advent of the kingdom, and for this table about which we're to partake. In Jesus' name, amen. This notion that our depths come praise and there's hope and there's mercy and our stories aren't too far off. I love the idea. Whether you're in the depths or the heights, whether you feel near or far off, all of us this morning, our stories are leading back here to the table together. This is Jesus's table. All who believe in Jesus as the true king of the world are welcome to receive today. Again, regardless of your church background or affiliation, but if that doesn't describe you, thank you for coming. Thanks for being here on a Sunday morning. We're honored that you're with us and we encourage you, keep coming back, keep asking questions about Jesus, about God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But if you are here today and you're saying, I there's something going on. There's something in the worship. There's something in the readings, the prayers, the, the message, the sermon, the scriptures. And I'm ready to begin following Jesus. We invite you to join us now as we confess our sin and we ask for forgiveness again and we trust in him again for our salvation. The words of confession will come up on the screen. Let's say them together now. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. It is my joy this morning to announce good news to you. Words that are true, not because I say them, but because of what God has done in Jesus. So would you open up your hands and receive again this mercy of God. That Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners and that this proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, would you stand together, greet those around you, and share this peace you have in Jesus with one another now. We declare these truths that Jesus is here. 
So lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right, all over the room. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your pursuit, for your grace. God, it is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image. You breathed your life into us. When our love has failed, your love has remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And it was on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death that our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. The table is a place of remembrance and a place of encounter. So we're gonna sing now and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to meet us here and encounter this morning.